morning. Welcome to St. James, everybody. It's good to see all of you guys. And for the people watching on the live stream, I'm glad that you're with us too. Or a recorded version as well. I'm glad that you're uh, joining with us in worship. Let's do some announcements real quick if we can. Everything this week is a normal schedule. Men's Bible study Tuesday, women's Bible study Saturday morning. Uh, Lent service uh, Wednesday evening at 7. Please sign up for that if you want to come. Today... Sunday school for kids is going to happen after both the 9 o'clock service and the 1015 service. Uh, Jen and Marilyn have some good things for the kids downstairs. So after this service, head down there. Uh, for those who are going to be at the 1015 service, they can have, uh, they'll have Sunday school after that as well. Um, youth confirmation uh, right after the 1015 service, and then uh, adult Bible study at 1230. That's on Zoom. Now, uh, tonight, a cu- couple things. First of all, uh, uh, there, new members is in the bulletin booth. There is no more new members class. That session has ended. The elders talked, uh, I've been talking for the past couple of months about uh, starting like uh, getting together for prayer once a week, whoever wants to. And we wanted to do it on Sunday nights and we've been kind of waiting for a new members class to end. And now that it has, we're going to start meeting here for prayer at five o'clock on Sunday evenings, whoever wants to come. And it's going to be pretty much just strictly for prayer. We might, uh, I might talk for maybe five minutes about, uh, about prayer, and then uh, we're all just going to pray together. So uh, please feel free to join, uh, join us here, and if it's, just, uh, if it's just one or two of us, we will, we will stay here and pray. But if you want to come, you can. Uh, uh, rest of the announcements, uh, look through here. Uh, go ahead and read through them. Uh, uh, donations for Easter eggs. Um, uh, there should be... Uh, a place to bring those in, bring those eggs in when you do. Service uh, times, we, uh, this is the last Sunday for the 745 service. This Sunday, we're going to try and uh, start cramming us into two services from now, and the way it's going to look is this. Nine o'clock service is still going to be, you sign up online uh, to come to this. We're going to try to cap it at 50 people. Uh, for those people who want to know that they have a capped service, the 1015 service, there's not going to be any sign up for it, and we're not going to put a cap on that service. But we are going to ask you, if you would, when you come, to still please wear a mask and try to socially distance. Um, you might be totally fine being real close to people. Somebody else might not. So just be aware of that. If you uh, try to sit not close to people, if you do and somebody gets up and moves, uh, Be gentle and loving because uh, they have a different concern level than you, and that's okay. So starting next week, you won't need to sign up for the 1015 service. And um, hopefully as things loosen up, fingers crossed, right, uh, we can get it back to where we're all together in one service. Uh, But until that time, um, this is a good first step. Some of you have asked about uh, kids Sunday school and adult Bible study here on site. And we're not going to do that yet. We're going to keep on doing things the way we have been. But we were, we're thinking about it and hopefully pushing forward to the time when we can do that. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, did I miss anything? Uh, youth group on Tuesday nights. Uh, if you have any questions about any of the announcements, um, get a hold of me. Uh, let's go ahead and stand, and uh, I'll open us up in prayer, and we'll begin worship. God, our, our hearts long for a place to go where where we can be completely accepted, where we can have contact with the transcendent, with you, with ultimate reality, where we know that uh, all of our brokenness is uh, gone and washed away. And we confess, together we confess as your church that we know that that place is your son, Jesus. And so, uh, Jesus, come and meet with us this morning. Uh, uh, be with us. Uh, uh, show us who you are. 
forgive our sins, connect us with ultimate reality. Uh, we can't do this on our own. Uh, we don't want this to be a lecture time or a time to sing songs primarily. We want this to be a time and a place where you, God, come and connect with us. And so we pray that you would do it uh, for your own glory and for our own good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue worshiping in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's pray together. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sins. Hear the Gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear Him. Amen. Please stay standing for the hymn.
Psalm 69. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pistol reading is from 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, This is really good stuff. I, I debated whether or not to preach on the gospel text or on this. But this is really good. Uh, Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that aren't, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
He's the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Gospel according to St. John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that was in the psalm that we just read a few minutes ago. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're asking, like, give us like some sort of miraculous sign that proves that you have the kind of authority that allows you to come in and shut the temple down. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the gospel of the Lord. So, uh, We've talked a lot recently about uh, the the you know how Jesus does the unexpected thing. He doesn't do what you anticipate he's going to do. He doesn't fit into categories, and this is one of those. And you know we we read this story and we think, oh wow, like well I, I don't know what you think, but like that's weird. Jesus is being tough guy. Like look at him like getting physical with those guys and like you know, flexing and, and, and throwing his weight around. And that's, whoa, that's not the Jesus I would expect. You know, it's interesting, because I, you know, I understand why we feel like that. The reason why we feel like that is because uh, you and I, we like the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I mean, he just works with our culture. Our culture values acceptance and forgiveness way more than it does um, justice and uh, how can I say this, you know, you know, sort of like the, the bully kind of thing. We would, we would think of what Jesus is doing as kind of a bully kind of thing. But for Jesus and his, the people around him, actually, this is kind of the accepted thing. The, unex, the, the, the unexpected thing, the weird thing for them is that this guy is nice to marginalized people. This guy is nice to women or little kids or foreigners. That's the unexpected thing. Why do I say that? Because do you remember last week in the gospel reading in Mark chapter 8, Jesus starts off by saying to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they all say, the first answers they give is, some people say you're Elijah and some people say John the Baptist. Well, from what we know of Elijah and John the Baptist, they were both pretty rough characters. Like Elijah's the guy that called the bears out of the woods to eat the little kids, remember that? I mean, there's more to that story than just that. Uh, John the Baptist like lives out in the desert and uh, wears ratty clothes and eats grubby things and has crazy hair and uh, yells at people a lot. And w- when people look at Jesus, they put him in that category, like a rough guy. I mean, he is a, he is a construction worker. That's what he is, right? I mean, he's, he, he's not some philosopher. Jesus is not like sitting. He doesn't come down out of his ivory tower and say, well, I've taught you guys long enough. I guess I have to do this death and resurrection thing. Now, he's a pretty tough, like this is the way he lives his life. This is probably, so uh, there's debate about this. Our story here is in John chapter 2, right at the beginning of the gospel. Mark and Matthew and Luke both tell about Jesus cleansing the temple, and they put that at the end, like right at the beginning of his, it's kind of the thing that gets him arrested, you know, when he gets executed. 
And so there's debate about this. Is like, is it just one event and John has pulled it up and put it in the front of the gospel in order to make some sort of theological point? Don't worry about that now. I actually, I actually think it's probably, although I don't know for sure, I could be wrong. My guess is that it's actually two separate events. Jesus has two sort of themes in each one. In the one in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's very much, he cleanses the temple and he says, you guys have turned my temple into a house of rebels. So the, that's actually what the word means, not robbers. You've turned it into like a place where you plan seditions against the Roman government. But here it's like, I'm shutting it down because you've turned it into a marketplace. You know, Jesus comes into this courtyard of the temple and the courtyard is designed to be a place of prayer. It's not inside the temple proper. Actually, Gentiles are, are allowed to come into this place that he's at now and pray if they want to. And what's happened is over, the, over time, it's filled up with people uh, selling animals and changing money. This is kind of a necessary thing. It's Passover, right? And so people are coming from as far away as Rome and Gaul and North Africa and Persia. Jews are to celebrate here. They're not going to bring animals with them like on the ship. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. What, what they do is they bring money and then they go to the temple and there's a place to buy animals for sacrifice. So this is not anything, it's not weird that there's animals and stuff there. But Jesus just kicks all the, uh, you know, kicks all the, the trades people out and then says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And uh, then they say to him, this is the important part for this morning, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Uh, Herod um, started building the temple around 20 or 19 BC. And this is probably, so this is, what, what does this make this? 29 or 30 AD, um, long after Herod's died, the project is still going on of rebuilding this temple. It's not going to get finished for another uh, 30 years, too. It's, it's going to take almost 60 or 70 years to get the temple rebuilt. And then it's only standing intact for about five or six years before the Romans come in and blow it up. So uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'm going to raise it up. And he's speaking about the temple of his body. So, you know, what's important is not, can I, let me see if I can say this right and make it clear. It's not important in the story. I don't think it's even important for Jesus why he's cleansing the temple. The important thing for John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke too is that he has a right to cleanse the temple. He's actually, forget the reasons for a second, you know, tradespeople or whatever. Forget the reasons. Jesus is making a point here. There's three points he wants to make here. First of all, this temple is going to be destroyed. He doesn't say he's going to destroy it, but he says destroy this temple. The temple and whether or not it's standing there intact is a huge theme in the life of every Jew, from Jesus' day all the way back to um, all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way back to Moses. Is God going to live with His people or not? Moses says yes. God's going to live here. We're building a tabernacle. He's going to come and live. Eventually, uh, Solomon builds a temple, and God moves in. The smoke, the fire, the works. God's presence is there. Eventually, though, God abandons his people because they rebel against him, and the temple stands empty. In 586 B.C., it gets destroyed by the, by the Babylonians, and then it's gone. And there's this deep longing while they're in Babylon, like, God, let us go back home. Let us rebuild the temple, and then will you please come and move back in? Will you please come and move back in? We want you to live with us again. 
And Ezra and Nehemiah come back and they start to rebuild the temple, but God doesn't move back in. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the whole lot, they're like, well, someday God is going to, Zechariah says this too, someday God is going to move back in with us. Herod comes along and he's like, Herod knows that like the guy who rebuilds the temple, the Jews will accept him as the true messianic king. So Herod dumps a lot of money into rebuilding this temple. It doesn't work. Nobody really accepts him as the king of the Jews. None of the Jewish people do. There's a lot of, fe- there's a lot of like different feelings about the temple in Jesus' day that Herod's rebuilt. Everybody agrees it's beautiful. A lot of people think, oh, this is good. Yeah. The Sadducees think, this is great. This is God's temple. He's back now. The Pharisees say, no, God's not moved back in here yet. It's a nice temple, but at some point, we're going to have to get in there and kick the Sadducees out and clean the whole place out have some fasting and prayer, and then God will move back in. Other people like the Essenes are like, no, that's, not, that's a fake temple. That's, that was made by the Romans. We've got to blow that temple up. And so when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up, like he's appealing to, right, to the heart of the Jewish story. He's appealing to their deepest desires to like have God back with them. And their belief that the temple is going to be the focal point of that. God is going to live with them, He's going to reveal himself to them. He's going to forgive their sins once again. God is going to live with his people. So Jesus says, first of all, I'm going to destroy this temple. Second of all, it's a sign that Jesus has the authority to do this. Not anybody can do this. Not anybody can say this temple's worthless. Let's get rid of it. Which is, I mean, Jesus doesn't just actually literally destroy the building, right? But he shuts the temple down. No sacrifices can happen. And what he's saying is, is this thing's obsolete. You no longer are going to need this temple anymore. The third thing he's saying is, it's going to be okay. The the temple being destroyed is all right because I'm going to rebuild it for you. And in fact, I'm only going to do it. It's only going to take me three days to do it. And of course, people are like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's a 60-year building project here, and there's no way you can do it in three days. Later on, the disciples look back and realize, oh, he means his body, which this is the interesting thing, right, is that this is the other element. Jesus isn't just going to rebuild the temple, but Jesus, in fact, is going to be the temple. That's what he's going to do. He's going to make the building, the, the, the whole facility itself obsolete because he is going to be the place. What does the temple do? Three things the temple does in the Old Testament, right? It's the place where God reveals himself. It's the place where, uh, it's the place where God forgives sins. It's mainly the place where God himself lives. And Jesus says, I'm going to be all those three things. And you, he's t- telling the Jews of his day, you're going to have to get over it. You're going to have to say goodbye to this temple because it is now obsolete. We all, all of us, we all worship all the time at obsolete temples. One of our confessions that we use sometimes has that prayer in there. It's, you know, the prayer that, that, that we confess that we've worshiped at all too many other temples. We didn't pray that this morning because I'm not organized enough to plan that sort of thing out, to, to coordinate that sort of thing. But that, that's a good prayer because that's what we do. We worship at obsolete temples. What would temp- temples being for Jews, the place where the transcendent is, the place where I can go and be reconciled, where, where I know, you know, they would talk about it in terms of sins being forgiven, a place where I know I can go and be completely accepted by the transcendent that's there, where I can go and know I have contact with ultimate reality. We all worship at fake temples like this all the time. Uh, we have a few minutes. Let me give you some examples. Let's see how many of these we can get through. Uh, so first of all, these are just examples. It might, this might not connect with you, uh, but um, uh, you'll, you'll be able to connect this with some part of your life where you're tempted to worship falsely. Uh, romance is a big one. 
romance is a fake temple, an obsolete temple. I should, shouldn't say fake because romance is real, but it's a fake temple. If we, turn, if, we, if we make romance the place where we have contact with the transcendent, where we are completely accepted, it's always going to let us down. I was having a conversation with Kate um, the other day about uh, love songs, pop love songs, and how some of them are, are fine and cute, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, a nice emo song, depending upon what your uh, mood is, uh, it could be appropriate. But listen to the lyrics and, and don't let it, don't let the lyrics of a lot of pop love songs have control over you. Don't imagine that they are actually true because what they're offering you is, I didn't use this language with Kate because I hadn't been working on this sermon yet. And I don't usually preach my sermons at Kate before I preach them to you either. For which she's thankful. But like, don't, 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 don't buy into the myths that these, that these, they offer religious experience. They offer romance as a religious experience. Can I give you some examples? Or I'm not cool enough to really pull this off, but I'm just going to give you some lyrics. So um, uh, Carly Rae Jepsen sings, and I really like it. I'm just going to give you like a smattering of, um, of, of examples. In, in the song, I Really Like You, it's like everything you say is a sweet revelation. What does that even mean? Like, everything you say to me, babe, is a sweet revelation. <laughs> like, that, that's, that's, that's religious language. Like, this contact with really ultimate truth coming out. Now, I know, like, when you first start dating somebody, you feel like that. Like, every word that comes out of this mouth is, like, rich and precious. Right? Well, th- this, is, th- this is using romance as a temple. Um, John Legend sings to uh, Chrissy Teigen and all of me, you're my end and my beginning. Well, that's actually Jesus' language from Colossians 1. You're my everything. You're my end and my beginning. This is religious language. Charlie Puth in One Call Away says, no matter where you go, you know you're not alone. I'm only one call away. I'll be there to save the day. This is prayer and salvation language. I just need to call me whenever you have a need and I will save the day. For those of you who've been in, in a, a romantic relationship longer than just a few weeks, you know that this sort of thing is nonsense. Right? There's no human being that you can just call that will come and save the day. But it's still an idol that many of us, it's still a temple that many of us would love to go and worship at to find true acceptance and a sense of the transcendent. Uh, the weekend sings and nothing without you. Don't stop your loving. It's all I have. I'd be nothing without you. If I don't have you, I don't have any sort of like reality or existence. That's what's being offered. And some of you are like, ah, oh, kids, you're junky, shallow music. Well, this is like pop love songs go all the way back, offering this sort of religious experience. The Righteous Brothers sing, you are my soul and my highest inspiration. Without you, baby, what good am I? Without you, I have no sort of like meaning or purpose. This is, this is acting as a temple, as, as a fake temple, as a temple that's offering you contact with the transcendent, complete acceptance, no questions asked. And by the way, you guys know this, right? I'm not saying that like like, love and romance is a beautiful, beautiful gift of God that you should enjoy. But when it moves from being a gift that you enjoy as a way to serve somebody else, as a way to experience God's love through somebody else, as it, when it moves from that to an actual experience of a fake God, when it becomes an idol, a house to set an idol up in, when it becomes a temple, then it's crossed the line into, into obsoleteness. It no longer works. It's not a thing that's actually going to, 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 to do what it offers us. I know um, this, uh, Chuck Klosterman points this out. Like he, this, is the, this is the way we, all of us as humans are. Uh, Chuck, Klo, Chuck Klosterman is a, a pop culture writer, and he says this, whenever I meet dynamic, mentally healthy Americans, I notice that they all seem to share a single unifying characteristic, the inability 
to experience the kind of mind-blowing, transcendent, romantic relationship that all Americans perceive to be a normal part of living. The inability to experience the kind of mind-blowing, transcendent, romantic relationship that all Americans perceive to be a normal part of living. We build a temple. We go into worship. We think this is... This is, it's a rom-com. This is, this is reality. This is truth. And then you get it in that temple, and there's, it's empty. It's completely empty if you use it as a temple. And generationally, like there's one generation that's like, oh, there's something wrong with me or with the, the woman or whatever. I'll just bail on them and build another temple. Let's try it again. And people bounce from relationship to relationship. A lot of, so, you know, I quoted you a lot of songs that, that, that are fairly current, current but they're, that sort of theme of romance as a religious experience. It exists in modern pop music, but there's another stronger theme that's just as strong, perhaps stronger, which is love doesn't exist. All you have is experience. People exist for your pleasure, and when they're gone, they're gone, and there's no sort of like, that's, that's actually the opposite thing you want. So, so what, what is that? That's looking at the older generations and saying, no, I don't believe in love. I watched my mom and dad. There wasn't anything sort of like, uh, Hugh Grant about any of what was going on with my mom and dad, you know. There was no Sandra Bullock there. Just a couple of people who barely talked to each other. And so I don't believe in love anymore. That's the opposite example. Romance is not a temple, but it also is a good gift of God, and it shouldn't be abandoned, okay? But, you know, back to this temple thing. It, it can, you know, what, what, I want to, what I want to convince Kay of, and all the rest of us too, even my own heart, is that don't worship, at the, don't worship in the temple of romance. It's an empty temple that is going to let you down. And the, the temptation is huge. Now, I've heard Lutheran pastors complain about, have you heard this? Uh, you know, uh, contemporary Christian music. Uh, Jesus is my boyfriend music. Have you ever have you heard people complain about that? Like, I, I'm hardly troubled by that. I mean, I, I, I like it when music has theological content. And there's something sort of sappy about a lot of pop Christian music. But what I'm more concerned about is people who listen to pop music who think that, you know, that I can get what Jesus can offer from a romantic experience. I'm less, let me say this, I'm less concerned about Jesus is my boyfriend music than I am about my boyfriend is Jesus music. Because a lot of people go into a romantic relationship thinking, this person's going to save my soul. This person's going to save my life. And like I said, it's, it's only a few weeks into any sort of long-term relationship, friends, romantic, whatever, before you realize this person's just as screwed up as me. This is no temple. This is a fellow worshiper. What are we doing in the same building? Let's go somewhere else and worship, if you're appropriate. If not, you'll go to a different temple with somebody else, or you'll just say, I don't believe in temples at all. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm the temple. Come worship me here. You bring your significant other. Bring your best friends. Don't, don't worship them, though. Worship me. I am your contact with ultimate reality. I completely accept you in ways that a loved one can never do. All right, here's another example. Um, I know this, this one's kind of weird too, but Harry and I were listening to a podcast this week. It's a podcast that we both like. It's about architecture and design. And um, the host of the podcast was interviewing a guy named Bradley Garrett who wrote a book uh, just recently called Bunker, Building for the Times. And it's a book about the architecture of like doomsday buildings, you know, fallout shelters, blast shelters, uh, underground bunkers, things like that, just about their architecture. And one of the questions, th th these are becoming more and more popular as time goes on. The government has all these old military cache buildings and underground missile silos that, that they're selling for lots of money to people who want underground protection. 
You got to have money for this sort of thing. And so the host was asking Bradley Garrett, he was like, so I get it, like with back in the heart of the Cold War, like JFK invited people to consider building their own fallout shelter. Some of you grew up in houses where there was a fallout shelter. My grandparents had a fallout shelter in their backyard that they had filled in, you know, once they realized that this is not going to be any use to us. But, you know, so I, I understand in the heart of the Cold War with sort of like nuclear disaster hanging over our heads, but why would people, why would this be of any interest to people now? And Bradley Garrett said this in the interview. He said, nuclear war was clearly an existential threat 40 years ago, but now we worry about climate change. We worry about artificial intelligence. We worry about viral outbreaks, you know, potentially one that's much more fatal than the one we're dealing with now even. There's an incalculable calculation that all humans are going through right now that, that people are trying to make every day. They're trying to calculate, like, how can I be as safe as, po as I possibly can and how much money do I want to spend on making myself as safe as I possibly can? You know, he says some people respond by becoming apathetic or trying to dull their senses to make it through these dangerous things. But other people respond by trying to control the parameters of their life that are immediately around them. By building places that, where you know I can go in this place and be perfectly safe. I can be safe here. That's a temple. It's not going to work. These people are building these massively safe, and also, by the way, incredibly luxury. This is rich people's sport, by the way. This is not open to the, to the likes of normal. This is not open to me and you who, who inhabit the realms of the proletariat. This is rich people stuff. But you build one of these massive things, and then you feel completely safe. And I was like, Harry, I, well, Harry was there, and I was talking to the podcast because I'm an old man. You know, I talk back to the podcast. It's not going to work. You know, you're not ever going to feel safe. A building is not going to make you feel safe. To build a building where you're like, okay, I'm complete. And for, for me and you, we don't probably have a fallout shelter or a bunker, but we have homes that do this sort of thing. It might not even be a home. It might be a place. It might be a group of friends. It might be a job. It might be a hobby where you go, where you can say, I'm completely safe here. It's not going to be able to carry that weight. Why? It's a fake temple. There's only one temple in the world where you can be completely safe. One more example, and then, then we'll be done. Um, this is a poem. I know not all of you are poetry fans, but this is a poem I've liked for a long time. It's by a, a poet named Maya Angelou, and uh, it's a poem called This Winter Day, and it goes like this. It's about uh, cooking in your kitchen. It's pretty basic. The kitchen is its readiness, she says. White, green, and orange things. She means vegetables and peppers. White, green, and orange White, green, and orange things leak their blood selves in the soup. Ritual sacrifice that snaps an odor at my nose. So you see what she's saying? Like cutting up these vegetables for this soup is like a ritual sacrifice. It's like, you know, they're all bleeding and I'm going to put them into this soup and then eat them. Ritual sacrifice that snaps an odor at my nose and starts my tongue to march, slipping in the liquid of its drip. The day, silver striped in rain, is balked against my window in the soup. What's she saying? She's saying, I'm going to make this soup. This soup, making this soup is a religious experience. But by the way, she's a poet. You shouldn't take anything that she's saying as like she's actually some sort of weird pagan who thinks that vegetable soup is actually an offering to the gods. But what she is saying is, is that me making this soup is like a religious experience. It's like a contact with ultimate reality. It's a form of sacrifice that protects me against the dangers without it, this suit protects me against the rain outside. I know this is a weird example, and this is not going to connect with all of you, but kitchen, a kitchen can be a place like this, a place where I am, I am completely in charge, a place where everything goes my way, a place where I perform acts of self-sacrifice that earn 
the love and acceptance of my friends and my family. Again, I totally get it. I know that cooking and eating food is a way to experience the love of God with other people. I, I totally get that. But to turn that into a temple, to turn that into a place, your kitchen or whatever it is, uh, you, you know, your shed or your, your den or your basement, or whatever it is, to turn that into a place where I, I can experience all I know that here I have meaning and purpose. I know that here I do things that make my life make sense to the people that I love. To turn that into that sort of place is idolatry. It's a fake temple. What Jesus wants us to do is to see that he is the only real temple. Again, the temple is a place where God reveals himself. It's a place where God forgives sins. It's a place where God lives. And Jesus says, that is me. My crucified and risen body is the only place in the entire universe where you can experience that sort of transcendence. And in case you're missing it, John makes it clear in chapter 1. Jesus is the only place where God reveals himself. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Do you want to experience the transcendent? Do you want, do you want revelation out of somebody's mouth? Carly, Carly Ray Jepsen's wrong. It's not coming out of any other human being's mouth. It's coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want a place where you're completely accepted? No questions asked. Your best friend in the whole world your spouse who you've loved for years cannot offer you that kind of acceptance. You know that you have to do things to maintain that level of acceptance with them. Jesus can offer that to you. He can offer you complete acceptance, complete reconciliation, complete forgiveness. John 1 verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything about you that would create alienation between you and any other person, Jesus comes along and says, I'm the temple, I can get rid of that. Do you want to actually live with God? Do you want an experience of the divine? It won't happen by cooking. It won't happen by creating a safe space for yourself. It won't happen in any sort of romantic relationship. It'll only happen by being connected to Jesus. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and templed among us, lived among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you want this kind of hope? Do you want this kind of temple experience? Do you want to know that you're completely safe, that you're completely accepted, that you have made contact with something that's really, really, really real? Not just fun, although it might be fun. Not just hopeful, although it might be hopeful, but really real. Go to Jesus. Stand with me and let's pray and have communion. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning as needy, temple building, idol crafting people, our hearts manufacture these things. We turn from one and feel victorious over it only to find another temple building right on the other side of the street that we're wandering towards. God, forgive us for this. Help us to find all of this ultimate reality, ultimate acceptance in you and your son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. God, help us to rely on your strength and wisdom. We read in the first Corinthians text about how your strength is weakness, which is actually stronger than our strength, and your wisdom is foolishness, but it actually ends up being wiser than our wisdom. God, help us not to rely on our own strength or our own wisdom or on our culture's strength or on our culture's wisdom. Help us to rely on your strength and wisdom, the foolishness and the weakness of the gospel, which is the only thing in the world that has the transformative power to make all things new again. Lord, in your mercy. God, help us to be faithful to your... Uh, well, to your Ten Commandments, which we just read, but help us to be faithful to them primarily because they're a reflection of who you are, your character, and your love for us, your covenant-keeping love for us. God, we want to be holy. We want to be people that honor our parents, 
that love and take care of our friends, that don't murder, that don't commit adultery, that don't steal, that don't covet. Most of all, we want to be people who fear, love, and trust you above all things. God, work by the power of your Holy Spirit, work the reality of your Ten Commandments down into the very depths of our being and cause it to grow out like a wonderful, beautiful plant bearing fruit everywhere in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, tons to pray about this morning. Lots of people who are hurting and struggling. We pray that you would bring comfort and hope and most of all, deep, radical healing power into the lives of all of us. Especially this morning, we pray for Mike and for Joyce and for Norval and for the family of Terry, uh, Marla's brother who passed away this week, that you would bring hope and comfort in this reality, this powerful, transcendent, temple-shaped reality of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, into their lives and into our lives too. Lord, in your mercy. God, we can only pray these things because your Son has bound us to himself and now brings us into your loving house, into your throne room, so that we can sit on your lap and bring these requests to you as your dear children. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.